You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So funny story for all of you. As you know, if you've been listening to this show, my son Jake is out of college and on his own. He's moved to L.A. He's got his first job and he got his first paycheck. So this was the exchange that we had when he got that first paycheck. He called and he was all excited. Mom, I got paid. I said, that's terrific. Great. He's been all interested in trying to figure out a budget so that he can make sure that he lives within that paycheck. He has lived with me long enough and clearly has absorbed enough of the Kool-Aid that he knows that this is an important thing to do. But before he even got there, he said, you know what sucks? I said, what? He said, taxes. Taxes. Can you remember getting that first paycheck and thinking, and I remember this so clearly, I was working selling sneakers at Kelly Mike's Sporting Goods in Wheeling, West Virginia. I would, I would fit sneakers and sell sweatpants. And I remember the first time I got paid, I had done this tabulation in my head of minimum wage, which I don't even remember what it was at the time, like $2.35 an hour, figuring out how much that paycheck would be when it actually got into my hands two weeks down the road based on the number of hours that I'd been there. And I I got it and I took it home and I, I showed it to my dad and I was like, what is up with this? And he said, taxes. Taxes are one of those experiences that you know that the first time any person anywhere, anytime gets paid, they're going to look at that and they're just going to think, what happened to all of my money? So I had that experience with Jake and I just wanted to share it with all of you because that's what we're doing here. We are sharing our stories and we're sharing our stories about money. And we're going to do that today by calling our new girlfriend, Ann Friedman. She is a freelance journalist covering gender, media, technology, and culture. You can find her columns in New York Magazine and the LA Times. And best of all, she is a fellow podcaster. We love her podcast. It's called Call Your Girlfriend. And she hosts it with her best friend, Amina So. And listening to this show... If you haven't done it, you have to, because it's like eavesdropping on two incredibly intelligent, hilarious women going back and forth on everything from politics to tampons to, yes, money. And welcome. Thanks so much for getting on the phone with us today. I understand you're calling us from your closet. Thanks for having me. I actually moved back to my living room, but you know, I do a shocking amount of work in my closet for a professional woman in 2016. <laughs> it's the dirty little secret of podcasters, right? Being surrounded by clothes and other soft items is actually very good for the sound quality. 
It's true. It also helps you forget that you're talking to hundreds of thousands of people and lets you think you're just on your own, which can be quite helpful. It can. Absolutely. So I want to start by talking a little bit about your show, which I love, and about being in business with your best friend. How long have you been friends and how long have you been business partners? Well, let's see. We've been friends since, I want to say, 2000. Eight, maybe 2009. Um, we met when we both lived in DC. And uh, at the time, neither of us were podcasters. <laughs> neither of us were in business on our own. Um, we started the podcast um, along with uh, our friend Gina, who has a radio background in God, spring of 2014, I want to say. And, and I have to be honest, it didn't feel like going into business together at that point. It felt like a fun side project that we were doing. Um, to just try to figure out what audio was all about and play around with it. And um, it wasn't until we started selling ads on the show, which was uh, about a year ago, that it we had to kind of get serious and incorporate and really started thinking of it as a business. So has the fact that you are now thinking of it as a business changed the dynamic of your relationship at all? I don't think so. I mean, one of the great things is that I have independent friendships with Amina and with Gina. And that means that like when all three of us are together, we're sort of in business mode. Um, you know, we know when we're together for a purpose of making a decision about uh, the podcast or when we're like together to record an episode. And then, um, you know, when Amina and I hang out one on one, it's not like we don't talk about the podcast, but it's not... I don't know. It's not all business. And I, and I would say that in terms of working with both of them, I mean, uh, friends of mine are not, they're just incredible women to work with. They're really organized. They really know what they want. They're really professional and good at what they do. I mean, it's a pleasure. So yeah. So on the show, you've said that talking about money is hard. Why do you think that? I think it can be, um, you know, I think it can be, there's a lot of uh, shame involved in money sometimes. Like we think we should be making more. We think we should be advocating for ourselves better. Or on the flip side, then we are paid fairly and it feels like too much. Um, or we don't want to admit that we're making what we think is actually a pretty good salary or a pretty good rate to work on a project. You know, the world judges women pretty harshly, whether they have, you know, too much money mm -hmm. perceived, you know, or, or, or not enough. And um, so, yeah, so there's that. And then, you know, just culturally, I don't think that we have a lot of conversations about it. And I do think that ultimately it hurts women more to not talk openly about money than it hurts men. But I think that that impulse not to talk about it affects everyone. I just want to tell everybody that what they're hearing in the background, however, however, um, <laughs> no, so no, sorry. no, it's really, it's, it's fine. I have done so many shows where my dog will just let loose with some sort of a bark. So I totally get it. There's a little bit of yard work going on in the background there. I just don't want anybody to think it's my stomach. You're hearing my neighbor's yard work on their pomegranate tree. That's what you're hearing. I, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> amazed that your neighbors have a pomegranate tree. Now you have to set the scene for us. Where are you? I'm sitting in my living room and actually, I mean, there are quite a few fruit trees nearby. This is the magic of living in Los Angeles, but um, it is pomegranate season. They're dropping from the tree and exploding all over my driveway. It's beautiful. Excellent. Well, I hope you're going out and gathering some of them. And pomegranate seeds are one of my favorite little new superfoods. So there you go. Oh, so good on a salad. So good on a salad. Back to the conversation about money for a minute. I mean, it. you're right that it is hard. And 
we had a very, very interesting conversation with Brene Brown about all of the shame that that we feel when the topic turns to money. How have you gotten yourself to take it up? I mean, to really participate in the conversation as much as you think you should be? I think that when I worked salaried full-time staff jobs, it was a little harder for me because, um, you know, essentially at that point, I was negotiating for a salary that I would have for an entire year and often more than that at one time. So you would, I would sit in a room and be like, what is my time worth in 2016? Now I'm a freelancer and I am self-employed and I work on some projects with other, um, you know, business partners like the podcast, but in pretty much every scenario in which I'm earning money now, I have to negotiate for myself in a small way. And I think that there is something about having to say, you know, no, I just want an extra hundred dollars for that small task all the way up to, I'm going to sign a contract to work in an ongoing way for you at, you know, a day rate that has really forced me to, uh, to force the issue of money with people. And, um, you know, and now the idea of going back to negotiating my salary once a year seems crazy. Cause now if I sort of, like, if I have a bad day and I don't advocate for myself the way I wish I had in, one situation or with one assignment, I can say, well, you know what? I'm really going to do this well the next time. And I'm not being paid well enough for this one job, but it's a tiny fraction of my overall income versus the high stakes notion of of salary negotiation. So that's really changed for me. Like structurally, my my work has changed. You know, you you can't see me, but I am nodding along here because I'm a freelance. (laughs) I'm a freelancer too. And I have, I had a very difficult time initially asking for money for me. And I hired people. I used, you know, lawyers and agents to do the asking. And it's only in the last couple of years that I've started taking on more of this asking myself and being able to do it in a way that I'm not apologetic about it. And it's hard. I can advocate very easily for my kids and I can advocate very easily for causes I believe in. But I think it's very, very difficult for women to advocate for ourselves. It's true, you know, and some of it is a shift in how you think about it. I mean, ultimately, me being paid what I'm worth is important for other freelance writers, too. I mean, I want everyone to be paid what they're worth. And when you start to think about, okay, my failure to negotiate is normalizing this behavior, I don't want that to happen. I want the people who assign me work to have to negotiate with all writers. And I want, I don't want to be the only one who's saying, you know what, like, actually, this is a lot more work than this amount you're offering me reflects. And, you know, here's why I want more. One thing that really helped me start to do that was to try to be a little bit removed from it, to try to act like a reporter, which I am as well, and say, you know, hey, I I did the math and this is actually going to take me eight hours and the rate you're paying me, you know, that's $10 an hour or something that's, you know, below minimum wage, or I don't know exactly like how every scenario was different, but I would definitely try to sort of find an external reason other than just, I deserve more money. And as I get better at it and better at it, I've, those excuses have fallen away and I've just sort of said, here's what I need to do this for you. That's this dollar amount. How do you feel about sharing your rates with other freelancers? I ask because we had a show on which Meredith Rollins, who's the editor of Red Book Magazine, said that before she moved up 
into her new job. She sat down with the woman who would have been stepping into her shoes at her last job and said, this is how much money you should be asking for because this is how much they're paying me. Because she said she knew that the other woman would not ask for enough money. And I thought that was incredibly brave. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I wish that women had more conversations like that. I I certainly ask when um, when I'm approached by a publication I haven't written for before, and I know someone who has written for them before or, or done some similar work, I, I will reach out and say, how much did they pay you for this? Um, and I think that you know, that mentality, especially when it's a private conversation, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know how I would feel about broadcasting all of my rates for everything, you know, just on the internet. But I think that, you know, listen, if any other freelance writer calls me and says, I'm about to accept an assignment for such and such place that you've written for, what do they pay you? I'm totally willing to be open about that. And I think that I, I wish I were better about asking sometimes too. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I, I want to talk a little bit more about freelancing, especially how it relates to retirement. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Ann Friedman. You'll find information about how to manage money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be back with Ann Friedman, co-host of the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. How'd you come up with the name? I mean, it feels like it was a total natural. It was, you know, I think that... um our friend Gina had been encouraging us to think about starting a podcast for a long time. Like As I mentioned, she has this radio background and just sort of knew that our chemistry would translate well to audio. And we were in the car driving somewhere together when we hit on the idea. We might have actually been listening to Robin, I forget. But once we had the name, then it was a done deal that we were going to do the podcast. And I think Amina bought the URL on her phone while I was driving. <laughs> like right then and there, we couldn't believe that callyourgirlfriend.com was available. And it seemed like that was the confirmation we needed. <laughs> yeah, that's just perfect. When you started working for yourself and not working for a company, that took retirement probably off the table. I mean, you no longer had a company contributing to retirement for you. It put it all on your plate. How did you start to deal with that? I mean, I well, so first of all, I've worked exclusively in media and for a long time in nonprofit media. So my hopes for retirement were pretty slim, even when I had a staff job. You know, as long as I've been working, which I graduated college in 2004, there have been all kinds of reports about media being a shrinking and unstable <laughs> profession. And I know, so, lucky you us. Know, I mean, I know, right? And so, you know, I, in some ways, I don't feel any less secure about retirement now as a freelancer than I did when I was on staff. However, it has definitely taken me several years as a freelancer to get to that point where, you know, it is a financially devastating thing to start from scratch as self-employed, as I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast know. And so I would say I was 
well into my freelance career, two and a half or three years before I was saving for retirement in earnest again. Um, but you know, like that said, I, maybe this is what I, I'm right on that cusp between millennial and not quite a millennial. I'm on the age cutoff. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes me feel very millennial is that I just can't even picture a world in which I'm like, you know, retired and going on cruises like that. That doesn't seem realistic to me, even though, you know, I mean, I obviously understand that I'm going to age and that working gets more difficult as, you know, if you're elderly. I don't know. I mean, it's a really hard thing. Well, I, I got to tell you, I'm on the other cusp. I'm I'm half Xer and half Boomer. I was born in 1964. And, and mm-hmm. I don't imagine a world in which I'm not working either, right? I don't know yeah. that if you like what you do, I don't know that that ever gets any easier. I think that I have a fantasy. I don't know how realistic this is. Like, you know, maybe this is something that I need to discuss with my financial planner. But my my sort of fantasy is that I get to do I'm still working, but it's like not the kind of hustle that I'm on now. And I'm I mean, I'm like, a I have like a cabin where I write books and stuff. That's like kind of my fantasy <laughs> for retirement. Like it's working, but you know, it's like pleasurable work. Yeah, so it's ridiculous. No, it's, it's not ridiculous. I mean, I, I've had that fantasy too. not necessarily a cabin where I write books, but writing novels and then I realized like I would actually have to write novels, which is I think much harder work than than I do now. I want to go back to your retirement though for a second because I heard that you have a buddy system. Can you tell us about that? I mean, I think that a lot of the things that I do with regard to my like, you know, work and financial life as a freelancer, I rely on friends in similar situations for accountability. And so, for example, when I realized I was financially stable enough to start saving again for retirement and had to figure out how to do that on my own without the stability of like someone in my office handing me some plans to pick from, mm-hmm. a friend of mine who um, is also self-employed, she and I had sort of an accountability system where we were like, we're going to read this book about saving for retirement. We're going to like get some basic knowledge about, you know, the good ways for people in our position to do that. And then we're going to commit together to like, you know, setting a monthly dollar amount and getting that all in place. And I have to say, if I didn't have those phone calls scheduled with her where I was like, oh, you know, crap, I got to read these like 10 pages because I've got my meeting with her and I told her I would. I, I don't I don't know that I would have followed through. So that, you know, now it's set it and forget it. I've got it all set up. But, um, you know, to get over that hurdle, uh, it was really helpful to have a buddy. Yeah, I think it's, it's so helpful no matter what goal you're trying to reach, right? Whether you're trying to go out and run. I have a running partner and I would not go in the morning if I didn't know that she was waiting for me in the woods, that I would be leaving her standing there if I didn't show up. So, you know, we need other people to get us to comply, I think, in a lot of different parts of our lives. Uh, that's so true. Sorry. No, I just, okay. one more thing is that, you know, with my, um, I think about this more casually as well, you know, where, um, just bringing up money among my friends, even friends who, I mean, or especially among friends who don't work in media mm-hmm. like I do has been hugely informative to how I think about it. I mean, I have a friend who she, um, she's a visual effects editor. She does like animation for movies and she, um, she told me, you know, she's like, you know, when I when I get an offer to do work that I'm not very excited about creatively, but, you know, like maybe I would do it if there were enough money. I quote them a stupid rate, like just an FU rate is what she calls it. <laughs> and and if they meet the FU rate, then it's worth her time. She goes in for this exorbitant rate. And if they can't meet the rate, then she's like, you know, I don't really want to do that work. 
work. And, you know, that's a strategy that I've used when there are opportunities that I am not super excited by that come up, for example. And like, those are things that if I hadn't asked her, how do you say yes or no? And how do you make choices? Um, I, I don't know that I ever would have learned that. And no, I <laughs> think a, you need a, a men- system. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I came yeah. up with kind of a rubric for that. So if you're going to say, if we, if I am going to say yes to something, I now know either it has to be fun. It has to move the ball forward for me career-wise, or it has to be stupid money. You know, it has to be hugely profitable. (laughs) And so that if it doesn't fit into one of those buckets, it's a no. And I understand that. Yeah. And it can be so hard in the moment. You know, it's funny. That makes so much sense when you say it. And when my friend told me that, I was like, Definitely. And but then, you know, when you're actually presented with opportunities that might not even be a great opportunity for you, somehow it gets harder to parse that. You know, you need rules. You do. You you need rules. And it's I mean, if you're one of those people for whom it's just hard to say no, and I'm one of those people, I've learned at least don't say yes. At least say I'll get back to you on that because I'm really not good at not saying yes right away. So I'm trying to just press pause or pump the brakes for a little while to give me some time to figure out which bucket it goes in. I want to talk about your shopping habits before I let you go, because I know Amina called you out about um, the sip and click or or drunk <laughs> online shopping. We call it the sip and click. Tell us what happens after you have a couple of glasses of wine, and I'll confess as well. I mean, I listen, we all covet material things. We are humans. <laughs> we are fallible humans. I think that um, most of the time I do the sort of aspirational, just put it in the cart and don't check out. Me like I know too. better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I mean, like a part of it is my, my tastes far outstrip my wallet, right? Like I like, I like nice things. And so I just, I like to think about a world in which I own like a, that $900 sweater, but like I'm smart enough to know that even if like my credit card would let me check out with that, <laughs> I, I, I know that um, it doesn't really check out financially. Yes. Yes. And after a couple glasses of wine, I have actually occasionally purchased that crazy thing that I would never buy sober and I send it back. You know, I've done that too, but I have to say that some of my best statement pieces have come from that behavior. <laughs> I get I get more compliments on the things that like my like drunken id wants than the things that I buy when I'm level headed and I'm buying a thing I should have. I have a I have a pair of giraffe print Converse that I purchased while stoned that like people compliment <laughs> me on all the time, and I, I just like never would have thought that that was something I wanted. But you know what? I do. I wear them all the time, and they're like really fun. All right, so we're gonna get our listeners send us pictures, tweet us pictures, or email us pictures of the things that you bought when you were drunk or you were stoned or you were otherwise out of your mind. You had a really big, bad fight with your significant other, and we will post them. I love that. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I had one other question. I was trying to think, okay, if I was just picking up the phone and calling my girlfriend today, what would I talk about? And Mm -hmm. what I want to talk about is the fact that women in New York have taken to wearing cat ears, like a headband. Have you seen this? I saw the second, I saw it the other day and I thought I'm, I was out of my mind, but I saw it for the second time today. Like it's not Halloween. And yet they're wearing these little headbands with cat ears. And I asked Kelly about it because Kelly is 25 and therefore much cooler than I am. And she said they're actually selling these things in stores that she goes into. I can confirm that this is not something I have seen on the streets of Los Angeles. <laughs> it might be a New York specific trend. Um, 
But, you know, I'm also not like maybe maybe I'm just like 10 years too old for the cat ear trend. And I don't know. I think I've seen them on like on the tops of hoodies, like on sweatshirts, maybe, on babies, but not on independent <laughs> on babies, right on infants. Um, but yeah, I, I can't endorse or confirm that trend. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you being out there and open with your opinions and your advice. And I hope that you'll come back. This was a total pleasure. Thanks for having me. We should all talk about money way more. I love Absolutely. It. So that was so much fun. Kelly has joined me in the studio. We're going to answer some of your questions. But before we do that, cat ears? Cat ears out for me. I don't understand them. I get them for Halloween. I get them for a theme party, but as an accessory. But you're seeing them, right? It's not like I'm imagining this. No. Like I'm seeing women on the street and granted focus group of two, mm -hmm. but you know, and nope. I, and you need three as any good journalist knows you need three, three to make a trend, yep. but no, you are not seeing things. They, it's, this is a phenomenon that's happening. Okay, yeah. then. All right. Well, we'll see what <laughs> comes next. Exactly. Yeah. What do we have today? Our first question is from Jean Rowley on Twitter. Her son just graduated from college as well, and he's working full time, but his employer doesn't offer a retirement plan. She's wondering, what are your suggestions? Well, so my son is in the same boat, um, and uh, I hope that your son is not having a difficult time with taxes, as mine is. Um, the very best thing to do is to open an IRA and fund it automatically, and it should probably be a Roth IRA based just upon his age. You know, the way a Roth works versus a traditional IRA when you put money in a Roth, you're putting dollars in on which you've already paid taxes. That money can grow forever tax-free. When you pull the money out, you don't have to pay taxes on it. And it has more flexibility. If you want to use money to buy a first house, you want to use some money to go back to school, you can get at that money. A traditional IRA is great as well. You get a tax deduction for making the contribution. But I, I do think, and I told my son, he's putting money into a Roth. He's having money moved every single month out of his checking account and into this Roth IRA. So it does happen automatically. And it's just something that he gets used to doing over time. Because even if you've got a child who is not making a ton of money yet and who is still being supplemented from the family, I still think you want to get them just in the habit of saving, whether they're saving a small amount or a big amount, so that it's just something that they know that they always do. Once the money's in the IRA, then you probably want to have them invested either in a portfolio of mutual funds that make sense, should be pretty aggressive based on their age, or a target date retirement fund. And let's say in this particular situation, when it comes to priorities mm -hmm. and they're just getting their first paychecks and they need to start with an emergency savings or should they go right into saving for retirement as well and toggle their uh, emergency savings with their retirement savings? They should have at least $1,000 set aside just in case of a big emergency. They should probably also at this point have a credit card mm. that they can lean on. Not that you want to be forced to lean on your credit card in an emergency, but you know that you can lean on it in an emergency at least a little bit. But I would still start as soon as absolutely possible just making a small IRA contribution and then ratchet it up 
as you start to earn more money. Sure. And you have the emergencies taken care of. Yep. Great. Our next question is from Mary. She wrote to you on Facebook. She says, this is another question for the podcast. We finally have gotten all our debt paid off, student loans, credit cards, etc. We have a three-month expense saved per your recommendation. That's her emergency cushion. Mm -hmm. And should we take the money we were paying on the credit cards and start paying down our mortgage? It's $170,000 at 4% interest rate or invest it in the stock market. So invest it because this is an arbitrage question. We've talked about this before, but essentially you are looking at what is your return on that money. You got a mortgage at 4% after the tax deduction, because you still get a a deduction on mortgage interest, you're earning about 3%, maybe a little bit less on that money. You can do much better by investing your money in the market. You want to try to invest your money in a tax-deferred account like a 401k or an IRA or somewhere else where the money can grow tax-deferred because then it's just working even harder for you. And yeah, put it to work. You'll do, over time, you will do substantially better than you will paying down your mortgage. Thank you, Mary. Congratulations on being debt-free. Yeah, yay. Yay. Way to go. And thank you, Jean. Sure. Thanks. Talk to you soon. We're going to roll right into our Thrive segment. We started today's episode by calling our new girlfriend, Ann Friedman. And I want to continue our girl talk today by sharing a little bit of gossip about me. You know, I, I get asked occasionally about my journey to become a personal finance expert, and it actually started by doing all the wrong things with money. I recently wrote a story about this for Refinery29, and I thought I might as well just share a few of my favorite mistakes with you here, but also to focus on how to recover from them. So one of the things that happened to me when I was a young reporter was that I fell victim to lifestyle creep. We can call this my Devil Wears Prada moment. When I graduated from college, I got a job as an editorial assistant at a magazine in New York, did not pay a lot. My rent, though, was fairly low in Brooklyn. Subway tokens were still just a dollar. My parents did help me with a few dollars a month, and I got a second job right off the bat teaching SATs. I should have been able to manage it, but my magazine was located right next to the Condé Nast building, and I wanted to look like all of those perfectly outfitted young women heading to their jobs at Vogue, and so I spent too much. I spent too much on clothes. I spent too much eating out at trendy restaurants. It very quickly led to my second mistake, which was relying too much on credit cards. As I as I said a couple of minutes ago, having a credit card as a back pocket emergency cushion, I think that's a great thing to do. Having a credit card that you use and then pay off every single month and get frequent flyer miles that you can use to go to Bogota, I think that's a great thing to do. Racking up some serious credit card debt that you don't pay off in full every month is not what you should do. And yet... That's what I did. And even when I got my act together and I had some money in savings, I didn't throw it against the credit card debt because I thought I was safer having money just sit in the bank where it was earning very little rather than paying off this interest at 18% a year. Eventually, I got my head together. I actually had a roommate at the time. She worked at Citibank. She helped me get back on the right track, and I used my savings to pay off that credit card debt and then rebuilt that savings. Um, but it took a little while. The, the final thing I did was stuck my head in the sand. I had 
moments of being an ostrich. Back in my 20s, I could tell you how much I was earning, but if you asked me what the balance on my credit card was or how much I had in that savings account or what my retirement account looked like, I would change the subject. And I certainly couldn't tell you what I was spending day to day, week to week, month to month. I was oblivious. But the more I started learning about money, and I learned about money by reporting and writing about money and also by talking about money, the more empowered I became. So I'd like all of you as we leave the show this week to find one other person in your life, preferably another woman in your life, and have a conversation about money that is meaningful to you in some way. It can be about saving. It can be about spending. It can be about investing. It can be about how much you're earning. I don't care. What I want is for all of you to talk about it. And I want to thank Ann Friedman for sitting down with us to talk about this subject today. Coming up on next week's show, we sit down with the amazing Clark Howard, the man who has probably saved more people more money than anybody I've ever met. Lauren Brutman will also be with us. She's got an amazing story of how she dug herself out of $40,000 in credit card debt. She chronicles it in her book, The Recovering Spender. So all of that is coming up next week. We want to thank Fidelity, our sponsor, as always. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. I hope you'll join us. We'll talk soon.